The Sydney Opera House acknowledges the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, traditional custodians of Jubagali, the land on which the Opera House stands. We honour the long Gadigal history of gathering and storytelling and acknowledge the strength and resilience of First Nations people and communities past and present. Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. There's never been a better time to be a virus. The climate crisis is forcing animals to migrate to new habitats, creating new interspecies infections. The bad news? More and more of the world's viruses could leap from animals to humans, which could mean that COVID is just the beginning. Welcome to the Pandemocene, an epoch of our own making. Pulitzer-winning science journalist Ed Yong and epidemiologist Professor Raina McIntyre tell Rebecca Huntley at Antidote what we can expect in this new era and how we should prepare for it. This event was recorded live at the Sydney Opera House in September 2022. Good morning, everyone. My name's Rebecca Huntley and I am chairing what is undoubtedly going to be a fascinating conversation between two people I'm about to introduce you to. The session is called Welcome to the Pandemocene, which is just a new word I learned a couple of days ago, which we're going to explore what that actually means in a minute. But um, we're really going to focus in this session on COVID. Um, is this the start? Where are we going next? And the kind of connections that um, researchers of all kinds and the public might draw between the climate crisis and COVID. So I'm going to start by introducing, uh, we've got two people, both of whom are alive, but one of whom is in the room and the other of whom is on the screen. Hi, Ed. Everybody give Ed a wave. It's great to see Hello. you. Hi, how are you going? I'm good, thank you. Excellent. I'm, you're joining us from Washington, D.C., aren't you? That's right. Great. All right. Well, I'm, given we've started talking to Ed, I'll introduce him first and then to um, go to Professor McIntyre afterwards. So... Ed Yong is a science journalist. In 2021, he won a Pulitzer Prize for his series of COVID explanatory articles. He got his fame from a um, very successful uh, blog on science. He's been a staff member for The Atlantic and his list of publications that he's written for is incredibly impressive. Nature, Slate, The Guardian, The Times, The New Scientist, Wired, The New York Times and The New Yorker. Ed Welcome virtually to the Opera House in Sydney. Hello. Thanks for having me. It is Saturday night over here, so hello from the past, I guess. <laughs> and you clearly don't have um, a very active social life, if that's what, <laughs> what you're doing on a Saturday night. Or are you going to go out after this and, and, and kind of let loose? Ed, or are you going to go to bed? <laughs> or have I been drinking heavily in the run-up right. to this interview? That's right. Who, well, we who will... can say? That's right. We'll find out very soon. <laughs> Let's go to the room to Professor Raina McIntyre. You would have seen her expert commentary in the Australian and the global media throughout the pandemic. Um, she's the head of bi the biosecurity program at the Kirby Institute, a world-leading epidemiologist and author of the forthcoming Dark Winter to be published by UNSW Press, is it? An Insider's Guide to Pandemics and Biosecurity. So please welcome Professor McIntyre. So I'm going to start with a question for you, Ed, and then I'm going to go to you, Raina, for your thoughts. Um, I have to say when I was asked to chair this session, I'd never heard the term pandemocene. I certainly um, know a lot about that, Anthropocene. 
And you've written that the Anthropocene, an era defined by humanity's power over Earth, is also an era defined by viruses' power over us, a pandemocene. Can you just give us, given this was the quote that really inspired this session, can you explain um, what you're talking about and addressing there a bit more for us? Yeah, um, and to be clear, the reason why you haven't heard much about this term before is that I basically made it up for that okay. article. So, <laughs> so here we are. Um, I've, I've been writing about the risk of pandemics for a long time, since well before COVID arrived. Um, and it has been clear for a while that we, the world, were going to be beset by new and re-emerging infectious diseases in a very regular drumbeat. Um, we've seen, um, you know, Ebola, Zika, various strains of flu, COVID, monkeypox is now sweeping the world. This is a thing that we can should continue to expect. And it's going to get worse, not better. I know that many people feel and hope that COVID was a once-in-a-generation crisis, that is not going to be the case. And I can say that with some degree of confidence. Climate change, um, which you've mentioned, is going to make that worse. So a recent paper very clearly showed that this is the case because, among other things, climate change forces animals into new places um, so that they can track uh, the changing climates of the world. As they move... Um, they meet each other for the first time. Species that were never um, that never uh, lived next to each other suddenly become neighbors and have opportunities to trade their viruses. That gives them, those viruses more chances to hop into new hosts and eventually into us. And this new study showed that this process has, been, has already been going on for some time. We're sort of in the, the peak moment of this right now, these, these current decades that we're living through. And it's the case that even if we cease all greenhouse emissions tomorrow, that process is going to continue steamrolling on into the future. So we do need to grapple with this new reality that we're living in, and we need to be better prepared for new waves of infectious disease, much like COVID. Now, whether we actually will do that or not, I think is an open question and something I'm not very optimistic about, given what's happened over the last couple of years. Yeah. I know, Raina, that you have some particular views about the extent to which we can connect global pandemics with climate change, and we're going to um, talk throughout the next, um, you know, half hour or so before questions about this. But I wanted to get you to respond a bit to what Ed had to say in that kind of quote about um, whether, in fact, we're in an era in which viruses are really going to define um, uh, the way we live. Yes, I completely agree. And some of it is climate change. Um, for example, Australia never had Japanese encephalitis on the mainland. It's a fatal encephalitis, very serious infection. Um, the mosquito that transmits it uh, is, was not present on the mainland of Australia. And all of a sudden, in 2022, we had it as far down as South Australia. So it kind of really badly affected the pig farming industry and there were several human deaths from it as well. And we're going to be living with Japanese encephalitis in Australia on the mainland now, um, which is a really scary thought because how did that happen? It's possible that two La Nina years, one after another, um, changed the mosquito ecology and made the conditions more favourable for um, 
the mosquito, you know, either a local mosquito that was already there or or the other mosquito um, to be transmitting this virus. And that is something that just fell between the cracks. Uh, same with monkeypox. If monkeypox um, continues on and occurs in very large numbers, it could get established in animal hosts in Australia, for example, and we don't know about our native mammals and whether, um, you know, they're susceptible to monkeypox or not. But again, there's a risk in countries where there's a lot of monkeypox that non-endemic countries will become endemic countries, which again means we'll be living with them forever. But the other concern for me is man-made viruses, and that's because the technology has really jumped ahead in... There's been quantum advances in um, technology in the last 10 years particularly, both in genetic engineering and synthetic biology, which is the ability to make viruses from scratch in a laboratory. So in 2017, Canadian scientists made um, an extinct orthopox virus, very closely related to smallpox. And um, so, and the method for doing that is published in an open access journal. Um, and that means that it is technically possible to make smallpox in a lab. You don't need to break into the CDC in the US or to vector in Russia. Um, someone who's motivated enough can make it. And the cost of this kind of technology has also declined exponentially. Um, in fact, the, the two um, the scientists who did that experiment said that it's not possible anymore to eradicate viruses. Um, genetic engineering has, you know, through CRISPR-Cas9, which is a precision gene editing technology for which, you know, the, the inventors of this technology won the Nobel Prize in medicine, um, but it's also got a dual-use a dual um, potential, so it can be used for good and is used for good, but can also be used for harm. So you can engineer viruses that don't have characteristics um, that they would have in nature. You can engineer an avian influenza virus to become transmissible in humans and take on pandemic potential. And that technology is everywhere. There are thousands of recipes, uh, so to speak, on how to create viruses like this. Um, and I think um, there's a long history of kind of silence around um, man-made viruses, but there's a huge history and lots of examples of, um, uh, you know, lab leaks and also the use of um, biological weapons throughout history. Um, and I think we'd be very naive to think that that's just not a possibility. Mm. I want to ask you both about, um, because both of the things you talked about you know, implicit in this is the role that we're either playing in driving these pandemics or the role that um, the social context in which the technology in which to um, manufacture um, man-made viruses might exist. So I want to ask you both, given COVID, what new knowledge do you think we have about the role that humans can play in in creating the conditions for pandemics and also addressing them. I'm going to go to you first, Ed. Yeah, so um, there's actually remarkably little new in the space, I think. You know, a lot of this is about, like, learn, really learning, less, um, confirming lessons that should have been obvious before. And one thing that... So I want to, I want to answer this by going, doing a little bit of history. There was a time in the um, late 19th century when uh, before people really grasped uh, that germ theory was real, that uh, infectious diseases were caused by microbes, when a large number of scholars on both sides of the Atlantic recognized that epidemics 
became more possible because of social problems, because of poor sanitation, hazardous working environments, um, poverty, lack of education. These were the conditions in which a disease could more easily spread among some communities and not others. Medicine was, um, uh, medicine was recognized as being a social problem. And a lot of that recognition dropped away when we discovered the microbes behind a lot of these conditions. That, that gave an obvious target. People could look down a microscope, find a bug and find something that they could eradicate through the products of the biomedical research enterprise. And that's still largely how we think about this concept of pandemic preparedness today. We think about vaccines, we think about drugs, we think about um, surveillance technology um, for new diseases. But I would argue that one of the really important lessons um, from the COVID pandemic is this old, old idea that pandemics are fundamentally a social problem and arguably more so than a biomedical one. So if you look at the US, it, this is a country with immense wealth and immense biomedical and technological power. Um, and yet it has had arguably the worst outbreak in the industrialized world. More than a million people are dead. It led the world in developing vaccines and yet lags behind dozens of other countries in terms of actually vaccinating its citizens. The US was ranked number one in the world in terms of preparedness by indices that were created before the pandemic actually happened. And as we've already discussed, has been completely flawed by this new disease. How could that have happened? Well, it's because the social infrastructure in this country is incredibly weak. Trust is low, trust between citizens and each other and between citizens and their government, which affects things like whether you follow public health advice or whether you um, decide to get a vaccine when it's available. Um, things like social safety nets are incredibly weak. So poor people or essential workers have no choice but to sacrifice their lives or to risk their health in order to protect their livelihoods. There are many, many examples of this. The healthcare system is incredibly weak. Um, so it's, hospitals are very, very easily overrun by new waves of sick people. All of these factors are continuing vulnerabilities. They're why America has such incredibly high death rates even before the pandemic, why um, it was, um, it, why it fared badly in the 2009 pandemic flu, which was much mild, it was a, a much milder disease than COVID is, why it has done so badly with COVID, why it is struggling to deal with monkeypox, a very, very different disease, which has very different epidemiological patterns to it. There's this constant underlying vulnerability that occurs when your social fabric is threadbare and frayed. And yet, we still don't really think about that when we think about preparedness, right? It's still, there's still been this posture in this country, at least, that it's all about vaccines and that's it. And that people who've been vaccinated can move on from the pandemic while everyone else, um, regardless of what the big picture is. And I think that's a problem because that leads us into further cycles of panic and neglect, which people of public health have been talking about for decades, um, the where we end up with in no stronger a position than we have been all this time. So, you know, have we learned any lessons from COVID from the last two, two three years? I would argue that the lesson we should have learned is that pandemics are fundamentally a social problem. Have we actually learned that and will we do anything different next time? I don't know.
Raina, I want to go to you to reflect on that, but also perhaps to tell us a bit about your observations about how we've done in Australia in relation to the social and political context around how we've dealt with COVID. We tend to kind of like to point and say we're better than America, we've got a you know, greater trust, we follow rules, we have more respect for evidence-based decision-making. Um, I'm putting that in as an open question. I wanted to get your sense to responding to that idea about the role of humans in pandemics and, and particularly to reflect on how we've dealt with it in Australia. So, I mean, one of the things I think um, that some people have learnt and that there's still some learning to go is around the role of disinformation in pandemics. It's been really major and amplified by social media, amplified by leaders, by scientists as well. Um, and, you know, there's a polarisation on certain things like uh, masks and whether COVID, SARS-CoV-2 was airborne. Um, it, it was clear to many of us, you know, very early in 2020, it's, it was airborne because we knew that MERS coronavirus was air, airborne and SARS-1 was airborne. And yet there was this huge effort to sort of deny that, to actually say masks were dangerous. You know, the first messaging that came out from WHO, from the US CDC, etc., was do not wear a mask, do not. You know, you might get acne. Um, really, that was the argument that was used. Um, and, and this is a, a, something that's been going on for decades, probably really accelerating after SARS-1 when um, there were particularly... Um, there was two epidemics in Toronto and Vancouver. They both saw the same... the first case of SARS at the same time. In Vancouver, they gave all the healthcare workers an N95 respirator. In Toronto, they said, no, it's not airborne. It's spread by large droplets, the same stuff we heard this time. Um, and so they had a huge epidemic and, you know, lots of deaths... Um, they had an investigation into it afterwards and um, we didn't learn anything from it. You know, there are still people who deny that um, SARS-CoV-2 is airborne. I mean, influenza is airborne. It, we're sitting here in this room. If somebody here has COVID, right, and you may not know it because about 50% of infections are asymptomatic, every time you breathe out, there's virus coming out into the air. And I don't know what the ventilation's like in here because I didn't bring my CO2 monitor today. Um, but if it's not good, then the longer you're in here, the greater your risk, and your risk is through inhaling it. It's just through inhaling it. It's exactly like cigarette smoke, as if someone was smoking in here. But how many people know that? You know, we've spent so much effort teaching people to wash their hands. You know, everyone's got hand sanitizer. everyone's scrubbing their hands, and that's not going to do a huge amount to stop you getting COVID. Um, uh, so I think there's still learning to go because there's still a lot of resistance to that message. And I think eventually we will come to a point where this will be dealt with on an environmental and societal level. We'll be using ventilation, we'll be using far UVC light, we'll be using a whole range of technologies to make it safer to be outdoors and to be indoors and to be in settings like this, um, carrying on our lives. But I think it's going to come after a lot of suffering, loss, and damage, um, you know, after after we are crippled with chronic disease because of the burden of long COVID, heart failure, respiratory failure, early onset dementia, when it becomes so obvious and when it's hitting the economy so hard, that's when we will move towards all these changes. And I think those changes will come, but it's just sad that it'll take a lot of loss before it happens. 
And I suppose to go back to that um, point about Australia um, vis-a-vis other countries in terms of how we've responded socially and politically to things, you talked that there was some early pushback about what was actually happening and perhaps it was politicians feeling like they didn't want mask mandates and they thought it was easier for people to buy hand sanitizer than not. But I'm, I want to get your reflections on, on how, I mean, give Australia a scorecard for how we've managed the pandemic in terms of not just our response to it um, as a health crisis but as a political and social challenge. I'd give it a five out of ten because, um, you know, some things were done well but some things have been done poorly and, um, you know, there's, again, a lot of polarisation about certain elements of the response. Australia's got a unique geography as an island which we have used many times in the past to keep diseases out and so that's what happened in early 2020. The borders were shut and it actually bought time until the vaccines were available so we weren't hit with that onslaught. Um, even, even the Delta wave, although the majority of people were still unvaccinated by the middle of 2021 due to delays and you know poor management of the vaccine procurement, even then um, it wasn't as huge as the Omicron wave. So most people were still uninfected. So we had time to get everybody vaccinated in 2021 so that when, when we did face the Omicron wave, most people were vaccinated and we got very high levels you know, 95% of people had two doses, but then we dropped the ball on the third dose. These vac- vaccines wane, you know, very quickly. Within three months, the levels go down, even after a third dose, even after a fourth dose. So our third dose rates are still not good, which means we've got a lot of transmission. I mean, we're on the way down from a wave, but there will be another wave. Um, and I think you know, again, relying only on vaccines is a mistake. You need a vaccine plus strategy. You need masks. You need um, safe indoor air. And that could be, it's not an expensive fix necessarily. Uh, you can buy an air purifier. You know, businesses can buy air purifiers if they they have got no other natural ventilation. Um, you don't have to re-engineer the whole building. Um, but, you know, I think all those things will come um, in the future. Um, in terms of the other parts of the response, I think, again, we made a mistake in, in some of the health communication, not not recognising disinformation that was happening, particularly in some culturally and yeah. linguistically diverse groups. Um, you know, for example, in 2021, it was realised that vaccination rates were really low in certain cultural groups and there was major disinformation happening there. Um, and um, I think just the polarisation and politicisation of things that are just public health things, you know. Even now, if you say wear a mask, people get hysterical and say lockdown, lockdown, you know. We're not telling people to lockdown. We're just telling people to wear a mask. But everything gets conflated with lockdown. Yeah. Um, it's like people just can't get past that. But it's done. It, it happened. You know, get over it. Let's move on. Let's have a productive and healthy lives the best way we can. Um- and I suppose that leads me to my next question. I'll go to you first, Ed. Um, and I was reflecting on this as I was starting to write these questions. It was only about maybe about four or five months ago I was in a shop and I saw a kind of very nice, slightly not expensive, but, you know, about $15 mask that was very pretty and colourful and a dress, you know, fabric of a dress I would wear and it was silk and I thought... I'm going to buy this. And then I thought, I wonder why I haven't bought one. You know, I've got lots of disposable masks 
And I thought, I wonder why I haven't bought a mask like this before, like as soon as the pandemic happened. And I realised that a big part of me was attached to disposable masks in the thought that this will be over, that this is something that I can throw away and I'm not going to invest in a mask because I was probably thinking um, this was a period of time and that there would be a magical time in the future in which I wouldn't have to have this. And I realised perhaps my mask is going to be something like any other clothing that I have, which is going to be part of my life and I always have to have one. Um, Given what you're saying about the inevitability of future pandemics, going to you first, Ed, what do you think citizens in this country or anywhere have to come to terms with in terms of how they live their day-to-day life to live in this new era? Like, what are the things that we have to accept that perhaps we haven't been accepting before? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I I think that, first and foremost... The pandemic has always been a collective responsibility, and it has been a mistake to treat it as a problem for individuals to tackle on their own. Much of the framing here is that um, your decisions about what you do should be based on your individual risk. So if you're vaccinated, your risk is lower, so you don't have to care about it. And I think that's a fallacy, because the problem with the pandemic and and with many of these um, uh, diseases is that... The risk at a societal level is always considerably greater than the risk at an individual level. Like when, when you get infected and have, and pass the virus on to other people, you can create chains of infection that do things like slam the healthcare system, um, that, uh, infect, that, uh, lead to disability because people develop things like long COVID. Um, your individual risk is always going to be a little bit lower than your contribution to the risk to your um, your contribution. It's going to be lower than your contribution to society as a whole. So we have to think collectively, and we have to treat these as collective problems. And in the main, I think we have not. So you know, the mask is a really good example. My mask uh, not only protects me but stops me from infecting other people, and that is one of its core functions. And I think a lot of people still don't think that way because there's not been enough messaging around that. And if you scale that up, um, you know, we then we we then it then becomes obvious that we should do the kinds of things that Rayner has been talking about, like better ventilation, right? That's a strong public health measure that protects the health of entire groups of people in large scale settings. It's not just the case where you're expecting individuals to do one thing for themselves and then have that scale up across a population. So that's one. I think we have to absolutely start thinking about this on a very, very different um, different geo- like um, collective scale. But I think we also need to think about it in a different temporal scale too. You sort of got at this in your question, right? Like the, the problem, one of the problems throughout this crisis has been that we assumed that it was going to be over quickly and people acted in that way. Like when I started covering this in spring of 2020, I wrote that this is going to be with us for at least a few years. Like this is the long-term problem. It cannot just be the case that we watch the peak of cases rising and then falling, drop all protective measures, and then lo and behold, they'll start climbing again. You can't just go through these cycles of panic and neglect. Well, I mean, the US has very clearly showed that you absolutely can, but you should not. Um, And partly, 
the answer to that is to think of this as a long-term problem. Like It should have been obvious when the pandemic first started. This is a thing that's going to be with us for years. So we need to set up the solutions right now that are going to protect us in the near, in the like middle term and long-term future, not just something that is going to like sort us out for a couple of weeks. And one of the reasonable, um, one of the reasons why um, things like stay-at-home orders and lockdowns were um, so unpopular, I think, is that they were sort of wasted, right? Like they, uh, uh, in certainly over here, they happened and very little was actually done with that time to steal the country for what was going to happen afterwards. Um, and I think that has been a consistent problem. So if you look at what's happening with the US now, COVID funding is going away. So things like um, things that have been uh, made freely available, like vaccines and a lot of testing, are going to start becoming expensive and costly. And then we're going to end up in a situation where, you know, if you are well off, if you are insured, um, you're fine. And if you're none of those things, you're kind of screwed. So, you know, we have to start thinking about these things and in a, in a long temporal scale, like my my profession, journalism, um, is often very bad at that. You know, we chase what is happening right now. Like if think if cases are going up, we panic. If cases are going down, we stand the all clear. But that's a completely wrong-headed approach to dealing with something like a pandemic, especially because the costs of COVID are cumulative. They accrue over time. So our healthcare system is shredded right now because many healthcare workers have endured the traumas of three cumulative years of of surges and then between surges, catch-up work. A lot of them have quit and that has left the US healthcare system with a huge deficit of generational knowledge, not enough workers and massive problems on its hands. Similarly, long COVID, which we've already mentioned a couple of times. I talk to people on the regular who are still sick despite having caught the virus back in the spring of 2020. The amount of disability that has resulted from this pandemic is growing all the time and has not been reckoned with at all at a societal level. What this means for the lives of the people who've experienced this, what this means for society as a whole, with a lot of previously young, fit and working age people not being able to work, we, we, we have not at all grappled with the consequences of that. So, you know, we, we treat these things in, in weird ways. Uh, it, it's individual problems as problems that are going to go away uh, in the near future. Both of those are wrong and both of us lead us, and both of those lead us into situations like we're in right now where we're still, we're still struggling. Yeah. Brian, other than coming to terms with the fact that well, just accepting that mask wearing should be not something that you get told to do, but that you do, you know, you put on like you put on um, clothes um, and other things like, for example, as employees saying to our employer, you want me to come back to work, you need to perhaps make sure that the building's properly ventilated. These are things that we can do as individuals. What are the other, I suppose, things that we have to come to terms with about how we need to live in this era? Well, I think reinfection is something I don't think people are aware that, you know, there's now quite a bit of accumulating evidence that every time you get reinfected, you actually get worse outcomes. It's not, it's not becoming the common cold. You know, you're actually increasing the risk of certain types of adverse outcomes and um, 
there's just a huge amount of data now on the effects on the heart, the lungs, uh, the brain. You know, there's brain shrinkage, there's drop in IQ, there's early onset dementia. Um, there's now studies, you know, showing that association. Um, there's heart failure. We're seeing younger people with, um, you know, cardiac impairment. And there's a study that just came out in uh, Nature Medicine, I think, which showed that in people who had shortness of breath or fatigue when they're trying to climb stairs and so on after having COVID, that um, the usual tests you would do, the types of blood tests you do to look for cardiac damage, they were negative. But if you did a certain type of imaging, you found generalised diffuse um, swelling of the heart, edema of the heart. So um, we're also learning that there's newer, different types of diagnostic tests for some of these um, manifestations of COVID, chronic COVID, um, you know, whereas, you know, the ordinary, a, a GP might send you off to get a chest X-ray and the chest X-ray likely would look normal. Um, so we haven't even got protocols in the community for GPs to say, right, your patients come in with shortness of breath or fatigue. These are the tests you need to do. If this shows this, then you send them to a cardiologist. If this shows that, you send them to a respiratory physician. There's nothing, you know. People are being told to do Tai Chi for their fatigue when probably they've got, you know, something wrong with their lungs, their heart or um, their immune system. So we're, we're just a long way from creating those clear um, protocols on how to manage people and send them to, to appropriate test and referral. And if we don't deal with it, you know, one thing I touch on in my book is the fact that human gen genome editing is, is, you know, it's absolutely going to be part of our future. The US, the UK are already working on developing super soldiers. So genetic engineering of humans to make, you know, super soldiers. But clearly the military people didn't talk to the health people because the populations in the US and the UK are going to be absolutely burdened with severe chronic disease. Um, so on the one hand, you've got these efforts to create, you know, stronger, better, fitter human beings. And on the other hand, you've got COVID wiping out the health of populations. Um, and, and that may play out geopolitically, you know, in terms of the US and China, for example, who are also assuming, uh, presumed to be doing these, um, this research on human genome editing. Um, but they've made a much greater effort to keep... Um, the impact of COVID down. I'm not saying I'm pro-lockdown, I'm not, you know. They've made a lot of mistakes in terms of their vaccination as well, um, uh, programs. Um, but I think uh, we there's a lot that's going to play out in the next decade that um, could take us in many unanticipated ways. I do want to ask one kind of, uh, a couple of Questions that, or hopefully, um, we won't be Pollyanna-ish about this, but to end on some kind of um, uh, at least some active hope around this. And I, you know, before I came to this session here, I was writing up notes for a piece of work that I'm doing on a campaign to try and end native forest logging in Australia. And we're doing lots of focus groups with people who aren't particularly, you know, particularly focused on the environment or climate as a kind of a defining reason why they do what they do. But we were trying to get a sense of what are the things that they value and why might they support a campaign to end native forest logging. And what was really clearly, um, what came out through all the groups was we've gone through a period of where the only thing that kept us sane was access to 
outdoor areas where we could, where the public could access it, where we could socialise and exercise and be with other people in a place that was um, a wonderful environment. The interesting thing is from the community point of view, there is an understanding that these pandemics will continue, that this isn't an isolated event. And so a big reason why they might want to support something that is would be wonderful, the end of native forest logging, is because of COVID. So I'm going to ask both of you, that's my kind of, you know, um, slight silver lining to the clouds um, looming on the horizon for some time. I want to go to, first to you, Ed. Again, other than, you know, learning how to bake banana bread, what do you think are some of the um, unexpected gifts of the pandemic, um, uh, things that we needed to learn that we perhaps are learning that will equip us to deal with the challenges ahead of us? Well, so here's, here's one that's very much on my mind and that we sort of touched on, on a little bit. So we've talked about long COVID, right? Um, this is probably not the thing you were expecting me to talk about when you asked a question about optimism. Yeah. Um, but long COVID is a complex chronic illness following a viral infection. Uh, it shares that with many other similar illnesses that have been dismissed and neglected for a long time, such as myalgic encephalomyelitis or chronic fatigue syndrome, such as fibromyalgia, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, POTS, dysautonomia. There's a lot of these that um, don't really feature in medical education that uh, have for the longest time been neglected, uh, been trivialized. Uh, people who have them have been told that they're making stuff up, that they're just depressed, that they're tired, all sorts of nonsense. These are genuine conditions. People are very sick. They have been sick for a long time before COVID. And long COVID, I think, is shining a light on how many people have already have experienced conditions like these and also how much wisdom they have to offer. It is really striking to me that when I first started reporting on long COVID back in like May of 2020, almost every clinician, um, every basic scientist I spoke to had no idea that it could happen. And yet all kinds of patient groups with these complex chronic illnesses predicted there would be waves of post-viral infections and people would be sick for months and years and they had advice for those people. Um, the uh, MECFS community has been a tremendous ally to the long COVID community. They know, for example, that uh, the thing that Raina said, that people go into their doctors and get given the wrong tests and they know what kinds of tests people should be asking for. They know that if you if you have what's called post-exertional malaise, which is that um, it's not just that you're fatigued, but that if you do even minor physical or mental exertion, you can crash so badly that all your symptoms become considerably worse. They know that um, if you have that symptom and you are told to exercise, you could become much, much worse rather than better. They have a ton of wisdom to offer. I'm writing a piece now about clinicians who specialize in MECFS, um, who know a lot about what, how to deal with post-viral illnesses and have a lot to offer those who are just starting to go on long COVID journey or who are running long COVID clicks. The problem is that in the US, there are probably maybe a dozen or two dozen of such people at most. They already have millions of people before the pandemic to deal with, and they have millions more now because of long COVID. Where this is 
a terrible situation. Like if we actually given weight to these conditions before the pandemic happened, if we treated them with respect, if we put research dollars into studying them, we would be so much better off. There is so much, so much more to offer people who are going through the long COVID experience now. But the, the optimistic side about any pandemic thing is that you there's always a chance to do better. Like we can fix that right now. We can put investments into studying complex chronic illnesses, not just long COVID, but also all of these other conditions that have been neglected for a long time. We can understand that they are part of the same problem, that understanding them together as a package gives us clues, scientific and medical clues, that will help to serve the needs of all of these patients. I think that is happening. I think it is happening very slowly and too slowly and too erratically for my liking, but I think it is happening. And that is a source of a bit of hope, I think. I think it means that whenever the next thing happens, and as we've talked about, it will happen, we'll be in a better position to handle the long-term consequences, or at least to even to anticipate what that what those consequences might be. I see the same types of things in a lot of different pandemic areas, right? Like in the 1980s, um, HIV, when HIV arrived on the scene, it was met with neglect and with dismissal. It was the work of ACT UP, one of the most successful activist groups in history, that pushed for research into, uh, into, um, uh, into AIDS and HIV and a lot of the medical advances that have happened since. Some of the same kinds of grassroots groups have uh, sprung up in the wake of COVID. They have the same kind of energy, the same kind of push for better changes to how we do science, how we approach public health, how we think of our collective risks to the pandemic. I don't think they are strong enough to change things in the near term future, but I think they are amassing power. And I think they might be able to make things better for us in the decades to come. Um, we're, we're right into question time because somebody did ask, um, are there any positives of all to come out of the pandemic scene? But just to reflect on what you think might be some of the things that you say develop that will actually help us like, get us... I mean, get us yeah, I agree with everything that Ed yeah. said. Obviously, those are positive developments. One of the other things is thinking about how we work and live. Um, and I think, again, this will come with, with um, changes to how to ventilation and use of fire UVC and so on to make indoor settings safer. But I think flexible working um, is, is something that we've become used to during the pandemic, but there's still a lot of resistance to it um, with employers. You know, a lot of, a lot of people tell me, and I've experienced it myself, you have to come in for this meeting. You know, you have to. We all have to be sitting there around this table to have this meeting. Well, why? You know, I've worked very successfully remotely and had meetings remotely. Some, you know, I think being flexible, some people do need to come into work because they haven't got conducive settings at home. Um, but others um, prefer to work from home. And really what you should be looking at is productivity, not, you know, whether you can see somebody's face or, you know. <laughs> um, and I think um, that's something we're, we're still sort of at that stage in the early 1990s where people are insisting on using the fax machine, you know. Um, <laughs> I think that that's something that will change as well. So that's one positive. Uh, it's good for respiratory viruses too when there's fewer people in, at work if you're allowing hybrid work so that um, that reduces the risk of transmission as well. 
Um, some ter two terrific questions around the future of um, science communicators as well as people in the health system. The first one is uh, disinformed students will be the next scientist science communicators. I'm not sure if you agree if they're disinformed, but thinking about that, are you optimistic or pessimistic about what this era will look like in their hands? So thinking about the next generation of scientists and science communicators. I'm going to go to you, Raina, and given you teach a lot of uh, the uh, these future scientists and researchers in the new ed. I think, you know, science communication is not just about individuals. There is a lot of... Um, you know, when I talked about disinformation earlier, um, often these are orchestrated um, attempts to, you know, create a narrative or achieve a political outcome without the use of force. It's sometimes called information warfare. And, you know, doctors and scientists are um, well known throughout history um, to sell themselves to spruke the latest thing, you know, whether it's tobacco or climate science denial, there's always scientists willing to get up and say, yeah, tobacco's safe or there's no such thing as climate change. So that's the difficult part in, in trying to separate out, you know, who's actually talking, speaking truth about science versus people who are just selling themselves for profit and power. Um, and, you know, you just have to look back through the history of climate science, the history of tobacco science, you know. Tobacco used to be advertised on the pages of leading medical journals. Camel used to advertise with a doctor, you know, saying more doctors smoke camel. Um, and the tobacco industry funded a lot of disinformation research. Um, and, you know, people are happy to take the money. You give them money, you know, a lot of researchers will take it and they'll do the study to show that tobacco is safe. Um, so that's the kind of thing we have to be um, careful about and how do you deal with it when it's, you know, it may not be corporate interests, it may be the interests of states, it may be um, the interests of um, rival states, you know, and um, um, there's been a researcher in the US who's written about the use of Russian disinformation in um, destabilising science in, in the United States, and um, that's Peter Hotez, um, Ed. Uh, you might have read his paper in, I think it was in PLOS Pathogens, um, and it was about the use of <clears throat> probably Russia couldn't defeat the US in military might in a straight-out open confrontation, but they've certainly done very well um, in terms of information warfare. Um, and, and that's part of that is the anti-science agenda um, and the, the spread of disinformation. We've also seen this coalescence of um, alternative lifestyle people with far-right extremists. They've kind of come together over this hatred of vaccines. So there's a lot of really profound social changes that are happening as a result of disinformation. So my final word on that, I suppose, is that, you know, just because someone has doctor on their title or a PhD doesn't mean they're, they're telling you the truth about science, you know, learn to think independently and um, um, be discerning about, you know, if something doesn't seem quite right, it probably isn't. Um, I want to get to get you to reflect on that, Ed, and also maybe to just snowball onto that. I'm fascinated having an elder, older teenage daughter who's kind of transitioned into high school during COVID and for whom her um, formal education, any post-compulsory education she does, will be in a time of, 
of um, both climate change as well as pandemics, and I certainly growing up during the Cold War had its own effect on me as a as an individual on how I saw the world and what I thought I was going to do. How do you, what is your feeling about this kind of rising um, generation of students and their views about science, science communication, and whether you're optimistic or pessimistic about their approach? I'm going to say two things about it. Like, like firstly, um, when we when we talk about um, misinformation, there's often this idea um, that in the science of science communication is called the information deficit model, where you sort of treat people as if they were empty vessels into which you pour knowledge, and that's how you change hearts and minds. And that is absolutely not how people process information. Like people process information according to their values, their identities, their cultural beliefs. And this is important to understand, because if you think that if you hold to the information deficit model, and a lot of people do, then you think that the way forward is to just tell people the facts, and then they believe you, and things go better. But that doesn't work. You know, to actually make progress, um, you need to meet people where they are. You need to understand what's at the root of their resistance to whatever it is you're trying to tell them. You need to try and find shared, like, cultural values, shared moments of identity. And this is this leads me to the other thing I wanted to say. Like, again, when we think about misinformation, I think that sometimes we we often treated as if it were a matter of trivia, right? Like, does hydroxychloroquine work? Yes or not? If you say yes, it's misinformation, right? Now, that stuff is important, but I think that what the pandemic has shown is that there's a whole sort of category of misinformation that to me falls um, feels like wrong frames of thinking, unhelpful ways of thinking about the entire problem. So, for example, when Omicron first appeared, a lot of people noted that uh, it was, quote-unquote, milder than previous variants. Now, that might have been true-ish, right? So if I got sick with that variant, I would probably have a slightly better time than if I'd got sick with Delta or what came before it. But it's worse at a societal level. It spread so quickly that any benefit in terms of severity is going to be completely swamped by the effect on society as a whole. So if you think tell people to think about this problem at an individual risk level, you are effectively misinforming them because the real problem exists at a broader societal level. And this is the very much the frame that much of the media in this country and elsewhere was pushing out. This to me is as much of a misinformation problem as a lot of the other things that typically fall under the banner. And it's a much harder thing to deal with because at its core, it's not a science issue. It is an issue of our values and what we what we believe. Do we care about things like equality? Do we care about the collective good? Do we care about protecting the vulnerable, the immunocompromised, the poor, the people who are long sick long term? Those are questions for society to grapple with ethically. And I think that's what we're sort of missing in this discussion. Like often the science is clear, but you could make very, very different decisions based on how you filter that science through the lens of your own values. And I think it's the values piece that we need to get better at. Absolutely. I've got got time for one more question, and this is a really good one from Roberta. So there's been pressure on the health system in the United States. Ed's talked about it, enormous pressure on the Australian system, as anybody working in and around it know. Um, 
there has also been uh, burnout in the healthcare system, significant burnout in the healthcare system in Australia. Um, views from both of you, how do we encourage future generations to want to work in this sector? How do we encourage people to stay in the sector or enter the sector? And a question I've got for you on top of that, which is, what has the pandemic shown us about how much or how little we value the act of caring for other people? So let's go first to that retention in the healthcare sector and the value that we put on care. I'll go to you, Rainer, and then you, Ed. It's a problem everywhere, not just in the US. There's a lot of people leaving the healthcare system in Australia as well. Um, I think health workers are disillusioned because their safety has been has not been prioritised. They've been expected to work in surgical masks a lot of the time. Um, they haven't been, when boosters have been recommended, they haven't been among the groups that have been recommended for prioritisation. Um, and, you know, they face occupational hazards day in, day out. Uh, in here in New South Wales, um, they're, they're advertising for $23 an hour people to be a nursing assistant, Right. There is a crisis in the healthcare system here. If you know anyone who is a health worker who's working in the health system, they're seeing it every day. It's affecting... It, if you need to access the healthcare system, you'll see it yourself. Um, I think um, it's the same with teaching. You know, I think a lot of teachers are leaving. Um, and these sectors are... What, what they have to do and what they have to deal with is kind of the opposite of the public narrative, which is the pandemic's over, it's all fine, just get on with your life. And they're dealing with the reality every day. Um, until we change the public narrative and, and acknowledge the seriousness of COVID and acknowledge the importance of work health and safety and tell healthcare workers that their safety matters, that they matter, uh, you know, I, I, if my kids wanted to go into medicine or nursing, I wouldn't, I, I'd discourage them. There's plenty of memes about them being heroes, but we don't necessarily pay them um, in a way that's commensurate with that. Ed, how do we keep... Uh, I think Rena nailed it, to be honest. You know, I, I, wish, I wish I had a better answer to the retention question, but the truth is that if we continue doing what we're doing, pretending that the pandemic is over and allow new waves of infections and sickness to work through the communities, that's going to worsen the problem that we already have. You know, hospitals are trying to do things like offer retention packages and meditation sessions. You're not going to yoga your way out of the moral injury <laughs> that healthcare workers are facing. Like, you know, the, the, the simple fact is a lot of them got into their job to help people. And the circumstances of the last three years, the political malfeasance, the, the um, poor acts, uh, the poor responses from the institutions, the, um, you know, patients not getting vaccinated, patients being antagonistic, all of all of that means that they cannot provide the level of care that they, are, they, they want to provide. And that is one of the most important factors behind their burnout and their decisions to leave. You can't change that unless you address our response to the pandemic as a whole. We can't do this like business as usual thing and expect the healthcare system to pick up the slack. And last thing I'll say about this is we call them frontline workers. If doctors and nurses are your front line against a pandemic, you have already failed and you will set them up for failure. 
what we need is a stronger frontline frontline. We need better community health. We need better primary care. We need better preventive services. We need that social safety net that I talked about that stops people from getting sick in the community rather than just expecting them to get sick and then dealing with the aftermath and putting all of that on doctors, nurses, and other healthcare workers. Because as we have seen, that system will not hold. Thank you very much. I think we're almost ready to finish. I, um, when I was asked to chair this session, I was uh, I asked Chip, who um, is the director of the whole um, event, why um, he was asking me to do it. I was very happy to do it, but I was interested. He said, "Well, you know, you write about climate change and social responses to climate change, so you kind of seem like a the right person to do this." And as we've been talking, I've realised that in the work I do on climate change, one of the keys to acting on climate change is fully recognising both the science and the social and political imperative to act that climate change requires. And once you've done that, you actually feel a lot better. You feel like you're in control in many ways and it gives you lots of pathways for action as a way to live in the Anthropocene in a way where you can still find some meaning and some joy. And I think that that's the message from today. We've got to accept the full reality of where we are in terms of not just COVID being something that's a flash in the pan, but something we have to live with, which hopefully gives us some of the tools and the mindset we're going to need to um, get through it with our humanity and a little bit of joy intact. Um, I want to thank very much Ed all the way from Washington. Hopefully he's going to go out and have a rager after this. <laughs> and Professor Raina McIntyre as well. Big, um... And everybody now go out and put your masks on. <laughs> Thank you. Watch this talk and others from Antidote 2022 on Stream, the streaming platform from the Sydney Opera House. Register for free now and start watching at stream.sydneyoperahouse.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon with more ideas at the house.